Many just do not realize that science conclusively proves the existence of God. Any true God would never leave his creation, mankind, in doubt about whether he exists. Then how do you explain the fact that your denomination is such a pitiful sliver of all the numerous conflicting divisions of Christianity, which is as a whole in global decline and will be eclipsed by Islam? Yet the irreligious nuns, those who claim no religious beliefs, are the fastest growing prospective demographic and were already the world's third largest category with regard to religion. Historically, wise men have always been in doubt as to whether God exists. Let's consider the incredible complexity of life. Everyone has witnessed explosions. Have you ever seen one that was orderly? Or one that created a watch or a clock? Or a single thing of exquisite design instead of chaos and destruction? If you threw a million hand grenades, you would see them produce chaos and destruction a million times. There would never be an exception. Of course, evolution does not imply that an explosion created anything. Evolution is an aspect of biology, not physics. It's a matter of population genetics, descent with inherent modification. That's all it is, and it is independent of cosmology, which is... Something completely different. That being said, cosmology doesn't say that an explosion created anything either. Rather, the Big Bang is considered an explosion only because of the initial speed of inflation of space and time from a singularity. Very shortly thereafter, energy did a conversion to matter, but did not turn into animals living on Earth. Instead, it became subatomic particles, which combined to become atoms. These coalesced in gargantuan numbers in different places, and their massive concentrations generated sufficient pressure to ignite the first stars. Stars run on fusion, slamming hydrogen atoms into each other at such enormous heat and pressure that their protons combine, along with neutrons, to create all of the other elements in succession. Stars collapse and die, exploding the debris they've created into space. Like a mythical phoenix, stars die in flames and can be reborn in their own ashes. And all those elements that the stars made in massive quantities now ejected into space slowly coalesce into planetary bodies. Then, a different string of chemical processes in these different environments led to the emergent properties of complexity, which had nothing to do with any explosion. Consider the next quotes involving the likelihood of an explosion creating the entire natural realm of life on Earth, let alone the beautiful magnificence and order seen no matter how far one looks into space. Dr. B.G. Ranganathan said, The probability of life originating from accident is comparable to the unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a printing shop. I get the impression that you've never spoken to an actual scientist. You certainly never read the work of any actual scientist. For example, Babu Ranganathan was never a scientist and has no degrees in science. He's not a doctor either. A doctor is someone who has earned or was awarded a PhD, which generally follows a master's degree. There are a number of creationists who pretend to have doctoral degrees but really don't, and don't even have a master's either. In colloquial terms, people who pretend to have degrees or expertise they don't really have are practicing quackery. You can also call them charlatans, or you can call them frauds, because that's what they are. The man you're calling doctor only has a bachelor's degree, and it's not even a bachelor of science, it's a bachelor of arts, and he got that from Bob Jones Fundamentalist Christian University, where we shouldn't expect that anyone on the whole faculty knows dick about evolution. I read a review of Ranganathan's book on Amazon, and it said that if you can make it through ten pages of this tract without finding numerous errors of the most basic science, you may need to go back to junior high. 
And based on that, I think you might look out of place taking remedial lessons in a classroom full of eighth graders. And this only speaks to the likelihood of any life at all, rather than the most highly complex forms such as large animals or human beings. What of all the millions of kinds of life existing today? There are no kinds of life. A kind is a false taxon invented by creationists trying to conceal the truth of taxonomy, how it always only ever reveals a cladistic phylogeny with a branching tree pattern of common ancestors. Creationists cannot discern any specially created kinds, as they would absolutely have to if there was any truth to their position at all. Neither can they appropriately use words like species, genus, order, or phylum for the same reason. The phylogeny challenge is the ultimate damnation of creationism, the proof that it cannot be true and that ultimately evolution is definitely, demonstrably, and verifiably true. A systematic classification of life forms reveals a successive series of descendant groups within parental categories, like a set of Russian Matryoshka dolls. These categories are inextricably interconnected such that every organism on Earth is evidently related to everything else and that every new species that ever emerged was a modified version of whatever its ancestors were. Biodiversity at every level is a matter of incremental superficial changes being slowly compiled atop successive tiers of fundamental similarities, which are how clades are identified. This is exactly what Darwin described, and if you don't understand this, you don't understand evolution. The English professor of astronomy at Cambridge University, Sir Fred Hoyle, also stated, the chance that higher forms have emerged in this way is comparable with the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. As we've already established in a previous video, Fred Hoyle had no comprehension of evolution at all. There are thousands of scientists today who do, but strangely you won't cite any of them. Like Professor Kenneth Miller, for example, who not only has a real PhD, but it's in the specific subject he talks about, which is rarely or never the case with creationists. Most of the self-professed creation scientists are either engineers or dentists. Dr. Miller holds traditional Christian beliefs, but he still understands the facts of evolution so well that he is the leading textbook author on the subject. The people you cite are usually either quacks from the ICR or hacks from the Discovery Institute. Many are lawyers rather than scientists. In a publicized debate against intelligent design theorists Philip Johnson, Michael Behe, Berlinsky, and others, Dr. Kenneth Miller showed that he could debate the lot of them by himself and still prevail every time. Consider the common mousetrap. Everyone is familiar with it, and most have used one. Which part of a mousetrap could you remove and it would still work? The answer, none. While ingenious, it is still a very simple mechanism. Since the mousetrap cannot be made any simpler, it represents a condition called irreducible complexity. Professor Miller also famously demonstrated that if you remove one component from a mousetrap, it can still serve a different function, as a tie clip, for example. And remember that many of the complex biochemical systems we see today began as other things that were adapted to new functions as they gained components and additional attributes. Certain living organisms also cannot be simplified or reduced in complexity and survive. The removal of any one part causes the system to cease functioning. Irreducibly complex systems cannot be produced gradually by slight successive modifications from a less complicated precondition. They must exist exactly as they are, whole, complete, or they cannot exist at all. Take away any part and they cease to function and therefore to live. 
You seem to be confused about what an organism is. An organism is a life form, the entity of a living thing. Every organism can be simplified and still live. Every organ can be simplified and still function. Every organelle, which are like the organs of a cell, can also be simplified and still function. You're not talking about an organism, you're talking about molecular components, and you're still wrong even then, because all of them can still function even simplified, although their original function may have been different. What are the implications of this? Charles Darwin, in his famous work, The Origin of Species, framed a giant problem for him and all evolutionists. If it could be demonstrated, he wrote, that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Those are his words. Yet nature contains endless biochemical systems that cannot be reduced in complexity. That is the claim of intelligent design creationists, but that claim was put to the test in 2004 in the Kitzmiller versus Dover trial, and it failed that test. Dr. Michael Behe was a biochemist representing a covert creationist organization called the Discovery Institute. He brought a handful of the best examples of irreducible complexity that they could hope to defend, and it was shown that every one of them had already been refuted by science before it was disproved again in a court of law. For example, Behe said that removing any one part of the bacterial flagellum will prevent it from acting as a rotary motor. However, the court ruled Professor Behe excludes by definition the possibility that a precursor of the bacterial flagellum functioned not as a rotary motor, but in some other way, for example, as a secretory system. Behe said, science will never find an evolutionary explanation for the immune system. But the court saw that he was presented with 58 peer-reviewed publications, nine books, and several immunology textbook chapters on the evolution of the immune system. However, he simply insisted that this was still not sufficient evidence of evolution and that it was not good enough. Behe said that each and every element of the complex cascade of enzymes and cofactors must be in place for blood clotting to work. But the court was shown that the evolution of complex molecular systems can occur in several ways. Natural selection can bring together parts of a system to function at one time and then at a later time recombine those parts with other systems or components to produce a system that has a different function. The complex biochemical cascade resulting in blood clotting has been explained in this fashion. Finally, the court ruled, we therefore find that Professor Behe's claim for irreducible complexity has been refuted in peer-reviewed research papers and has been rejected by the scientific community at large. Additionally, even if irreducible complexity had not been rejected, it still does not support ID as it is merely a test for evolution, not design. Now, this is important because in this case, the judge was a Bush-appointed conservative Christian and the star witness for evolution also held traditional Christian beliefs. So God's existence was already assumed and not in question for most of the people involved in that trial. Yet they determined that criticism of evolution does not qualify as evidence of intelligent design. So what does that do for you and your claims of having proof of God? I should also mention that the conservative Christian judge lamented how witnesses for intelligent design who proudly touted their religious convictions in public would time and again lie to cover their tracks and disguise the real purpose behind the ID policy. This included where Michael Behe redefined his terms incorrectly in order to avoid admitting evidence that had already proved him wrong. You will see that Darwin would today say his theory has failed. Utterly. Its many breakdowns mean it cannot be true. He would say this. Sadly, he's not here to tell us to drop his theory that it's false. If only people would believe Charles Darwin's own rules governing his ideas. No one would believe evolution. Back from the grave, he would be the first to disown the theory of evolution. 
No, he wouldn't. If Darwin were alive today, he'd have won the Nobel Prize for his discovery. I wish you were open to two-way conversation, but the reason you're not is that all of your claims are false. You can't list any of these many breakdowns because Darwin's theory hasn't had any breakdowns. Darwin made many specific predictions, which should only be true if his theory was right, and nearly all of them have been confirmed. Darwin proposed a process of natural selection, and since his time, field biologists have demonstrated natural selection in action numerous times. Darwin predicted that there should be transitional species discovered in the fossil record, and since then, other scientists have found hundreds and hundreds of them, with many of those lineages now effectively complete, including our own. There are no more missing links anymore. The first of those discoveries occurred within Darwin's lifetime. Darwin recognized that the limbs of birds look like the limbs of dinosaurs, but with the fingers fused together. So he predicted that there should be an ancient bird discovered with unfused wing fingers. Such should not exist unless evolution is true, and the first example out of many was discovered just a couple years later. Darwin also predicted the discovery of Precambrian fossils, and now we know of several. Darwin also argued that the Earth had to be at least hundreds of millions of years old, and he said that humans living today were the same race, which in his time meant that they were all the same species, and he said that our species first occurred in Africa. He also realized that offspring inherit units of information from both father and mother. He didn't know about genetics. He couldn't figure that part out. But the discoveries of other scientists soon filled that gap. Every relevant discovery to date continues to support or confirm Darwin's theory, which is why evolution is now the foundation of modern biology, and Darwin would have every reason to be proud of that fact were he around today. We start with an example of molecular machines to better appreciate the complexity of cells. Japanese and German scientists have now discovered the smallest of nature's machines called tiny engines. Advanced research on these remarkable super small engines of life begs the question, where did they come from? A group of Japanese scientists exploring the crystal structure of F1 ATP ACE enzyme discovered nature's own rotary engine, no bigger than 10 billionths by 10 billionths by 8 billionths of a meter. The tiny motor includes the equivalent of an engine block, drive shaft, and three pistons. It runs at speeds between one-half and four revolutions per second. This motor not only ranks as the smallest ever seen, it also represents the smallest motor that the laws of physics and chemistry will allow. When you say these things have the equivalent of three pistons, your listeners probably don't realize that it doesn't actually have any pistons. In real life, ATPase looks like wibbly-wobbly molecular masses fluctuating according to thermal noise, but in diagrams, they're simplified to look like brand-name rotary motors on sale at the Home Improvement Depot, so they're a favorite among intelligent design proponents. Remember that the claim of irreducible complexity is that science can't give a natural explanation for these, so it's no surprise that you didn't mention that the German scientists have illustrated a step-by-step -step process for how these could have evolved. American scientists also described in detail how there was a single point mutation at one stage, followed by a loss of function in this other gene, and then subsequent duplication slash fusion of a different gene, followed by another loss of function in this other gene, and how that could explain the sequence of how the structure was built, piece by piece, one mutation at a time, and how it changed functions at different stages but remained functional at every stage. These also included a phylogenetic orthologue and referenced analyses of stoichiometry to confirm how the described steps were evident both in the structure and in the genome. 
The reason that you're not aware of any of this is because you don't get your information from people trying to do science, but from people trying to undo science. In Germany, a research team used new instruments to examine an enormous molecule, the yeast 26S protosome. Though not the largest molecule in existence, this one contains over 2 million protons and neutrons and is the largest non-symmetrical molecule mapped to date. This molecule can only be described as a wonder. It serves as an intracellular waste disposal and recycling system. Recognize such an organism could never have evolved gradually. This is literally impossible. Funny that when you read the peer-reviewed scientific literature, all the experts are convinced that it is possible, and you'll never be able to cite any experiments or evidence showing that it's not. For example, this study shows that the 26S proteasome can be separated into three stably associated subcomplexes, and it gives a sequence of evolutionary steps. 28 of its 31 subunits are simply recycled from existing proteasomes. This other study shows a genetic ortholog indicating that protosomes were present in the last eukaryotic common ancestor, but that certain subtypes were lost in specific lineages such as birds. Now, why would God eliminate these subtypes from specific lineages as if all of this happened by random mutations that were subsequently inherited? Is God trying to convince everyone that evolution is true? How is it that you're the editor-in-chief of Real Truth magazine? If you were interested in the real truth, you'd get your information about science, from science, and not from opponents of science who are trying to undermine it. Now another amazing quote about a single, truly incredible organism. It is necessarily long to illustrate the complexity of just one molecular machine. This fascinating understanding about your body is more than worth the time taken to read it. In many biological structures, proteins are simply components of larger molecular machines. Like the picture tube, wires, metal bolts, and screws that comprise a television, many proteins are part of structures that only function when virtually all of the components have been assembled. A good example of this is a cilium. Cilia are hair-like organelles on the surfaces of many animal and lower plant cells that serve to move fluid over the cell's surface or to row single cells through a fluid. In humans, for example, epithelial cells lining the respiratory tract each have about 200 cilia that beat in synchrony to sweep mucus towards the throat for elimination. Already amazing, we're just warming up. A cilium consists of a membrane-coated bundle of fibers called an axoneme. An axoneme contains a ring of nine double microtubules surrounding two central single microtubules. Each outer doublet consists of a ring of 13 filaments, subfiber A, fused to an assembly of 10 filaments, subfiber B. The filaments of the microtubules are composed of two proteins called alpha and beta tubulin. The 11 microtubules forming an axoneme are held together by three types of connectors. Subfibers A are joined to the central microtubules by radial spokes. Adjacent outer doublets are joined by linkers that consist of a highly elastic protein called nexin. And the central microtubules are joined by a connecting bridge. Finally, every subfiber A bears two arms, an inner arm and an outer arm, both containing the protein dynein. But how does a cilium work? 
the fascination grows greater. Experiments have indicated that the ciliary motion results from the chemically powered walking of the dynean arms on one microtubule up the neighboring subfiber B of a second microtubule so that the two microtubules slide past each other. However, the protein crosslinks between microtubules in an intact cilium prevent neighboring microtubules from sliding past each other by more than a short distance. These crosslinks convert the dynean-induced sliding motion to a bending motion of the entire axoneme. Now let us sit back, review the workings of the cilium, and consider what it implies. Cilia are composed of at least a half dozen proteins. Alpha-tubulin, beta-tubulin, dynean, nexin, spoke protein, and a central bridge protein. These combine to perform one task, ciliary motion, and all of these proteins must be present for the cilium to function. If the tubulins are absent, then there are no filaments to slide. If the dynean is missing, then the cilium remains rigid and motionless. If nexin or the other connecting proteins are missing, then the axoneme falls apart when the filaments slide. What we see in the cilium, then, is not just profound complexity, but also irreducible complexity on the molecular scale. This was terribly complicated, but that's the point. All of this evolved by blind, dumb luck? Not exactly luck. According to this study, cilium either originated from a permanent symbiosis between an ancient spirochete bacterium and an archaeobacterium, or an infection with a particular type of virus, but there is evidence that it was more likely an autogenous evolution from a microtubule center organizing cytoplasmic and mitotic microtubules. The article explains the chemical arrangement of components inevitably resulting in the structure's ninefold symmetry, and then, of course, how it subsequently came to function as it does. Organisms are all complicated, some wonderfully so, and yet they cannot be reduced, diminished, or simplified in complexity. They had to come into being exactly as they are, because they never could have arrived at their present condition gradually. But every scientific paper relating to these subjects say they did, and they explain how they did. Now, you can either examine the situation and look at all the indications of how it came about, or you can imagine that it came pre-assembled according to a magic spell cast by an invisible man. However, history has consistently shown that the second route will never result in either a right answer or a useful one. We should stand in awe of any god great enough just to design and create cilia. But you haven't shown that your God can make cilia. In fact, you haven't shown that your God even exists, nor that it even could exist, and you certainly haven't given any indication of what it can or cannot do. All you've done is recite a string of logical fallacies and circular arguments routing back to your assumed conclusion without presenting any evidence to support your position at all. And one of the tactics I commonly see from creationists is they'll ask me, how do you explain this? And I start to explain, and then I interrupt that answer and ask, well, how do you explain that? And then I start to explain, and they interrupt that answer too. And they keep interrupting the answers to ask new questions until they finally get to the point where I say, well, we don't know the answer to that yet. And they say, see, you get to a point where you can't explain it. They don't want to know that there are answers, and they don't want to know that science has all the answers. They ignore it all, not realizing that every verifiably accurate answer we have came from science, and that religion doesn't explain anything, and can't show that anything it says is actually true, the way only science can. That's why I always say that science doesn't know everything, but religion doesn't know anything. <laughs>